Well, good morning. Really, really excited to be here with you guys today. Um, so I'm hoping that most of you here have gotten a chance to know me somewhat over the last seven months or so that my family's been here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, like Craig said, my name's Caleb Garnett, the youth and young adult pastor here. Uh, but if you have gotten to know me, there's some things about me you've probably gotten to know. And one of these things, I know the youth know it, and I've talked with Bruce a lot about it, is that I'm a big football fan. I love football. And being a huge football fan, one of my favorite days of the year is Super Bowl Sunday. Now, this last Super Bowl, I know some people were not quite so happy about it. I was. But uh, if, you didn't, if you didn't watch it, uh, the game saw the Eagles at the very end, and they were losing. They got the ball back with eight seconds left. So they had to go into what's called desperation mode. So this happens when a team knows they've essentially lost the game, but they have one last chance for a miracle. And usually that just involves them throwing the ball as far downfield as they possibly can and hoping against all odds that one of their receivers catches it. Now this usually doesn't work. Uh, it didn't work for the Eagles, they ended up losing, but they had no other choice. The only other choice was to just accept the situation the way it was, accept their loss and get out of there. Uh, but they knew that they had to work. They knew they had to try anything they could to win this game. And it usually doesn't work out, but actually, if you're a Packer fan, you actually have seen this miracle play work a couple times the last decade, and that's pretty impressive. So I'll give that to you. <laughs> so over the last few weeks of our series, our Personal God series, we've seen a number of situations where people have been in a desperation mode. And just last week, Craig spoke to us about a man who was suffering from leprosy, and Jesus healed him. He knew that coming to Jesus was his only chance to be healed. And all of these people in these situations who have come to Jesus have done so because they knew that only Jesus could perform these healings. They knew that he was a personal God who cared for people. So they knew, just like the eagles in that situation, their only option was to sit by and accept their situation or was to act by getting to Jesus. So today's passage is no different. We're going to see the same kind of desperate situation today. And today we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So let's read this passage. It says, One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the son of man is the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. So this story, the healing of the paralytic, is a story that is found in Luke. It's also found in the other two synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2. And I would encourage you to go read these accounts in these gospels to fill out the details in the story. But one interesting detail that we find only in Luke is where these religious leaders have come from. So Luke tells us that 
some Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. And it seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. So this brings us to the first thing we're going to see in the story, which is the determination of the religious leaders. So we find out in Mark's gospel that this story uh, takes place in Capernaum in Galilee, which was Jesus' home base. So that's a big claim to fame. And Capernaum's other claim to fame is that it's the only place I've ever been personally that you had to pay to use the public bathroom. So that was kind of funny. But these religious leaders uh, of Israel had come not just from Galilee, the local region, but also from Judea and Jerusalem. And we often like to gloss over that kind of stuff when we're reading the Bible. Uh, But let me tell you, that's a long way to travel. So Galilee is in the northern part of the country, and Judea and Jerusalem are in the southern part of the country. So from Jerusalem to Judea is roughly 120 miles. And it takes around two to two and a half hours to drive this. Uh, So I actually did this when I was there. It It takes about two to two and a half hours to drive. And these men weren't driving. These men were walking. And they were willing to walk 120 miles both ways to see Jesus. 120 miles there, 120 miles back. And this took commitment or determination on their part. I can tell you from personal experience that hiking in Israel is difficult, to say the least. So I had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land last May as part of my degree program. And we hiked a portion of what is called the Jesus Trail. They say trail loosely. There were parts of this we had to hack through with a machete. It's not really a trail. (laughs) But it starts in Nazareth and it ends in Capernaum. And we did this for three days. On an average, we hiked around 10 miles a day. And one thing you should realize about Israel uh, is it's filled with hills and valleys. So you're almost constantly walking up or down, almost constantly. And there are also thistles and thorns everywhere. You're like, your legs will get cut up if you're walking in Israel. And depending on the time of year you're there, it's extremely hot. The average temperature when I was there in May was 100 degrees every single day. So which was hiking through Israel for any distance is not for the faint of heart. See, scribes and Pharisees, they hiked this. They didn't just make a quick jaunt over to Capernaum to see Jesus. They went out of their way to try and catch him, way out of their way. But why were they so concerned about what Jesus was doing that they would have to do this? Well, the reason they were so concerned with Jesus was he was a threat to their authority and their power. The Pharisees were the self-proclaimed religious leaders, spiritual leaders of Israel, but they were well aware of the following that Jesus was amassing. And toward the end of his life, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and has the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the Pharisees are talking and they say to one another, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And everyone going after Jesus meant that there would be less people who were going after them and following them. And as we progress throughout Luke's gospel, we're going to see these religious leaders become more and more desperate to stop this from happening. So in contrast to Jesus, who cared for the people, these religious leaders did not care for the people that they were meant to shepherd. See, they should have been caring for the people's spiritual state and their physical well-being, but they weren't. And this is actually part of the reason why Jesus was teaching and performing healings, according to Matthew 9, verses 35 and 36. So in that passage, we see that Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. 
So John Walvoord and Roy Zuck in their commentary uh, offer this insight into Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders from these verses in Matthew. And they said that the people were maligned by the religious leaders, helpless before them and wandering about with no spiritual guidance. These religious leaders who should have been their shepherd were keeping them from following the true shepherd. So the religious leaders should have been spiritually shepherding the people, but they oppressed them with their rules and their regulations. The religious relationship between the religious leaders and the common people in Israel was an abusive one because they oppressed the people with so many laws that they made up that they knew no one could ever follow. But at the same time, they were the only authority these people had on the law of Moses. So they were stuck with them. They couldn't leave even if they wanted to. And because of this, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was attracting such a large following and taking away from them. So they were waiting eagerly for any chance to eliminate this growing threat to their power. And that led some of them to traverse over 100 miles to the Galilean village of Capernaum. And it was in Capernaum where we see that some men brought a paralyzed man to Jesus on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they could not because of the crowd. So that's going to bring us to the desperation of the men. So this group of men had heard about Jesus and the healings that he'd been doing. And when they found out where he was, they knew that they had to reach him because Jesus had just been withdrawn in the wilderness. He was praying. So when they found out he was there, they knew they had to reach him. And he was teaching somewhere in a house in Capernaum. So I wanted to show you actually a picture of the ruins that I took of the houses in Capernaum when I was in Israel. Now, these houses pictured right here, they would have been more the upper-class houses because this was right next to the synagogue. Uh, but the average house in Capernaum would have had about one main courtyard with a couple rooms off of that, three or four rooms off of that. And just a fun fact, the covered area back there is actually what they believe to be Peter's house. That's where uh, Jesus healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, so that's why it's protected like that. But these would have been the average houses in Capernaum. So you just kind of get an idea of the size. And either way, these houses wouldn't have been huge according to today's standards. But regardless of how big these houses were, the men couldn't get to Jesus because the house was overflowing with people. In Mark chapter 2, we're told that many were gathered together so that there was no longer space, not even near the door. But that didn't deter these men. They were desperate to get to Jesus. They knew if only they could get to him, that he could heal their friend. But they couldn't get in through the door, so they did what any smart first century Jewish person would have done, which was go up on the roof. And that might sound crazy to us in today's society, but it wasn't back then, because these houses would have had flat roofs, and most of them uh, would have had stairs that actually led up to the roof, because as I mentioned, it gets really, really hot in Israel in the summer. They didn't have air conditioning, so often they would go up and they would sleep on their roofs in the summer to get a little cooler. So the men knew they could get up there. So it wouldn't have been a problem like it would be at our houses today. So these men, they go up on the roof and they proceed to dig through and lower their friend down on his bed in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. And as I was reading commentaries, I came across this quote that really struck me. It was from the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. And they said, This proved the determination and faith of the friends of the paralytic. They counted on Jesus healing their friend because it sure would be a lot harder to bring him back up through the roof than lowering him down. So, yeah, yeah, that's an understatement. But these men had faith that Jesus could and would heal their friend if only they could reach him. Now, the text doesn't actually tell us what the reaction of the crowd was to this event. You know, Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and the whole entire roof starts coming undone. 
<laughs> and a stretcher is lowered down into the house. So you can only imagine that some people in the crowd would have been confused and wondering what in the world is going on. Uh, we can imagine some people would probably have been none too happy that the teaching was interrupted. And if you put yourselves in the shoes of Jesus or the crowd, uh, I think it'll help you imagine what you would have been feeling at this time. So I don't know if you've ever been interrupted while you're teaching or been in a situation where the person who's teaching is interrupted. Uh, it's kind of annoying, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I'm sure that some of you who have been teachers or currently are teachers in any capacity understand what it's like uh, to be interrupted, or anyone who has children or works with children know what it's like to be interrupted. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, I'm the youth pastor, so every Wednesday night I know what it's like to get interrupted. I understand this. <laughs> and, you know, my first, my first feeling is to get frustrated and just I want that distraction gone. I want the interruption gone, but, you know, not, that's not how Jesus responded. Jesus stopped everything he was doing to have a personal interaction with this man. And this is why Jesus is God and we're not. Because Jesus was and is a personal God. He could have easily told them to stop what they were doing. He could have ducked out when the roof started coming undone. He could have made his way through the crowd and gotten out of there. But instead he stopped what he was doing to have a personal interaction with this man. See, Jesus ministered to the masses, but he was never too busy for the individual. So in verse 20, it goes on to say, that seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Now, everyone in the crowd could see this man's condition and what his need was, which was to be healed of a physical ailment. And that's why his friends went to all this effort to bring him to Jesus. And as wonderful as the spiritual healing was, it wasn't going to help them get their friend out of the house. It wasn't going to help them raise him back up through the roof. So the friends might have been a little confused, wondering what was going on along with the crowd. You know, but that's the beauty of Jesus. That's the beauty of Jesus. See, Jesus knows what our deepest needs are before we even have to tell him. He knows all of the hurt and the pain and the sin that we're carrying with us in our lives. He knew what this man was going through. You know, he, and so for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm in graduate school, as I kind of mentioned, and I came across a quote recently that reminded me of this event as I was preparing for my final presentation. Now, this is, uh, the quote is in regards to mental health ministry versus special needs ministry within churches. But I think the principle really applies here. So in his book, Stephen Grevich says, it's easier to minister to behavioral issues than it is the hidden disabilities. Now, that quote is specifically addressing, like I said, uh, special needs ministry and mental health ministry. Uh, but what he's saying here is that it's easier to address a problem that you can see than it is to address a problem that exists unseen within a person. So in this narrative, Jesus uh, and the whole crowd, they can see that this man has a physical disability. They can see it visibly, but that's not what Jesus addresses first. You would think it would be, but it's not. Jesus addresses that hidden problem, the man's sin. And the passage doesn't actually tell us whether or not the man's sin is what caused his condition, but Jesus chooses to address that first. Because Jesus cares for this man's spiritual condition before all else. And his physical condition was also important to Jesus. But spiritual health should always take precedence over physical health. And as I mentioned earlier, that would have been a surprising turn of events. And we're not told what the response is by the crowd or the paralyzed man or his friends. But we are told the response of these religious leaders. So they immediately reason in their hearts. 
They say only God can forgive sins. Now, they're not always uh, on the money, these religious leaders, but they actually were completely correct here. Only God can forgive sins. I hope that any of us who are sitting in this room would actually agree with them that only God can forgive sins. And they were right about that detail, but they were missing the big picture of who Jesus is, who Jesus really is. They wanted to know what gives this carpenter's son the right and the idea that he can forgive sins. How dare he? So that brings us finally to the defense of Jesus. So Jesus knew what they were thinking in their hearts, and he chooses to defend himself against this claim of blasphemy. He says to them, why are you reasoning these things in your heart? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat and went home praising God. And everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. So in short, what Jesus is really saying here is that actions speak louder than words. And I know I've learned this from personal experience, especially since being married. Uh, I'm sure that anyone who's married or has been uh, understands that when your spouse, especially our wives, ask us to do something and we say, I'll do it later, that's usually not a good response. That's usually not a, a good idea. So one thing that is uh, a big problem in my life, one of my biggest chores is laundry. I hate doing the laundry. See, I, I also have what can only be best described as crippling ADHD. So laundry is terrible for me. There's so many steps. You got to get it out. You got to put it in the washing machine. You got to put it in the dryer. You got to take it out of the dryer. You got to fold it. You got to put it away. It's too much. It's too much. I hate doing it. So Shelby will remind me uh, time and again, hey, don't forget about your laundry. She tells me all day long. And I tell her that I won't. I say that I won't. And then I'll leave it in the dryer for the next like three days. You know, <laughs> so with my words, I say the right thing. I tell her that I'm going to get it done, but I don't back that up with my actions. So now when I tell her that I'll take care of my laundry, she knows to expect about three to five business days start to finish. <laughs> And then my laundry has to be done again, and it's a vicious cycle. <laughs> but the point here is that our actions confirm our words. We have to back up our words with our actions. If I say that I'm going to do something, I better actually do that thing. And Jesus, in this story, he knew that was the case. He knew he had the authority to forgive sins. He knew that. But obviously, there were those present who weren't just going to take his word for it. So Jesus backs up his words with his actions by healing this man. Because let's be honest, it's a lot easier to say we're going to do something than it is to do it. It's a lot easier to say someone's sins are forgiven than it is to perform a physical healing, especially one of the magnitude of healing a paralytic. I mean, I could say that your sins are forgiven, but that doesn't mean anything because I can't prove my authority to say those things. For me, they're just words. But from Jesus, he had, the, he had the authority and he proved it. But if Jesus can't heal the man here, then he's going to be revealed as a fraud and the Pharisees are going to win in their minds. But if he can, it's going to prove his authority to forgive sins. And when we examine uh, more closely the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you'll see why it's even more important for Jesus to back up his actions with his words. Jesus called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the religious leaders multiple times throughout his earthly ministry. 
In Matthew 23, verses two and three, Jesus is teaching to the crowds and he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds for they say things and do not do them. Jesus was well aware of the hypocrisy of these people who were criticizing him. The Pharisees made it their job to enforce the law. See, that's actually not the part Jesus took issue with. The law was a good thing. The law was meant to point out sin and bring people to the point of repentance. But the Pharisees didn't even follow the law themselves. They made up so many laws. They were so hypocritical. Jesus warned the people of following the actions of the religious elite unless they lined up with what they taught. But Jesus, on the other hand, was the opposite of the Pharisees. He was not a hypocrite. He didn't just let his words do the talking. He backed it up with this miraculous healing. So this healing was a sign to all who were present. They saw that because Jesus had authority over the physical self that gave him authority. It confirmed his authority over the inward spiritual self. So Jesus restoring this man's body was miraculous and amazing. Not to downplay that, but it was a sign of a much deeper spiritual restoration for this man. The whole event amazed everyone who was present. They knew that they had seen amazing things. And this was not the last miraculous healing that we'll actually see in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus would perform many more signs in the presence of his disciples. And witnessing this healing and all the other healings during the ministry of Jesus made a huge impact on his followers. And some of them would go on to write a number of books in our New Testament. And one of his disciples who would write a portion of the New Testament was John. And in 1 John 1.3, he says, We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in another of his letters, his last letter, 3 John, verse 2, the Apostle John writes these words. He says, Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. See, John was proclaiming to the recipients of his letters what he had seen Jesus doing during his earthly ministry, which was care for people. John wanted the recipients of his letters to be in good health physically, but he wanted that to reflect their spiritual health first. In the passage from Luke, he had seen Jesus bring this man into a state of being spiritually healthy, and then he followed that up by making him physically healthy. And John Walvert and Roy Zuck, in their commentary on 3 John, said that the apostle was concerned for the temporal well-being of others, and not only for their spiritual welfare. He must surely have learned this from Jesus, whose concern for people's physical troubles is attested in all four Gospels. So John showed personal care for the recipients of his letters because he learned it from Jesus. He witnessed Jesus being a personal God who cares first and foremost for our spiritual state, but he also cares for our physical well-being as we see demonstrated again and again throughout the gospels. Jesus would turn suffering into rejoicing and he would turn desperation into praise. So these things are all wonderful to hear, but What do we do with what we've heard today? What do we do with this? Well, there are two things that I want us to take away from today. The first thing is to be on a guard against hypocrisy. See, these Pharisees, they were the spiritual leaders of the people, but they were leading through hypocrisy. They were not practicing what they preached. And this is what Jesus took issue with, and we should as well. I'm a firm believer that if you're going to ask someone to do something, 
you should be willing to do it yourself. And that goes for pastors and church leaders as well. If we're standing up here and we're preaching God's word to you, I want you to make sure that we're living that out in our lives. Hold us accountable. Make sure we're not leading from a place of hypocrisy. Look for the evidence in our lives that we're practicing what we preach. And even if you're not in vocational ministry, beware of hypocrisy in your own life. Because hypocrisy in Christians is one of the main reasons why non-believers don't want anything to do with the church or Jesus today. If you are a believer, you should be living out what you know to be true. So don't go like posting a Bible verse on social media and then destroying your witness by living a lifestyle of sin. Because our Christian witness relies on our actions and our words, sending the same message to the world around you about who God is. Allowing people to see the work, in, the work of Jesus in your life is going to help draw people to him. And that brings us to our final uh, application point, which is to bring our burdens to Jesus. Because maybe today, like the man in this passage, you find yourself in a desperate situation where you feel like there's no way out or no fix that you can possibly see on your own. You might need a miracle in your life. And like these men, you might even know that the answer is to get to Jesus. But it feels like there's a house full of people between you and him, and you can't possibly reach him. But if you feel like that today, I want you to never forget that there's always a way to reach Jesus. Even if you have to be lowered through a metaphorical roof, so to speak, there's always a way, a way to reach our personal God. Jesus wants you to come to him. He tells us, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So no matter what your burden is, like the man, the paralyzed man, Jesus already knows it. He wants you to give it over to him. And maybe like this paralyzed man, you have sin in your life that you need Jesus to forgive. Jesus knew this man needed forgiveness and to be healed. But it wasn't until these men made an act of faith by coming to him that he actually healed him. So today I just want to encourage you to step out in faith and give your burdens over to Jesus. Only Jesus can forgive your sins, and only Jesus can give you that healing that you need. So no matter how far away you feel, just remember God is not mad at you. You haven't done anything so bad that he can't forgive you. So have faith today, like these men, in who Jesus is and what he can do for you. He's a personal God, and he's waiting for you to come to him. And while this story took place thousands of years ago, Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same personal God for us today as he's always been. Even in our most desperate situations, you can always reach for him and he'll always be there for you. So today I just want to end by encouraging you to come to Jesus to find your healing.